everybody, and thank you for joining me again this morning on Next on the T. We are brought to you today by the great folks over at the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Company, and our good, good friends over at Frogger Golf. And, folks, if you haven't checked out FroggerGolf.com lately, what a wonderful array of products they have. I can't brag enough about their accessories like the amphibian towel that won best new product at the PGA merchandise show back in 2009 or their catch latch technology that easily and securely attaches and releases your, your amphibian towel, your brush pro club cleaner or whatever accessories you have right to your golf bag. It really is a great way to make sure you're not having to ask the group behind you. Hey, anyone find my towel? Check it out online at froggergolf.com. And let me also say how much I love the new Bobby Jones fall apparel, folks. you got to go check out all their great lines that they've come out with now, new for this fall at bobbyjones.com. And plus, while you're there, please, you know, first of all, you get to watch, you know, the playing lessons from the, for the pros that Bobby Jones did way back in the day. So many of those lessons still hold true today. And, uh, you know, please check out also the equipment uh, tab when you're on their site as well. You know, you get to see all the great, uh, you know, whether it's the rescue clubs or, or some of the fairway woods that, uh, that they have available as well. So please, bobbyjones.com, great fall line of clothes, great golf equipment. You're going to be really happy that you went to check it out. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and this morning I have two great guests that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. First up with me this morning is going to be PGA Tour Rules official Stephen Cox. I had the great privilege of meeting Stephen at the uh, Tour Championships uh, a few weeks ago. It was a lot of fun to get to, uh, to pick his brain for a few minutes. So we'll chat about his beginnings in the game of golf, how he got started as a rules official, and all the things that he has you know, had the opportunity to be involved with behind the scenes. It, folks, it, it's way more than just handing out rules you know, during the, uh, you know, during the uh, tournaments itself. It's not just you know, him doing rulings here and there. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that they have to get involved with as well. So Stephen will be here to uh, join me in here in just a few minutes. Following him, we'll get a return visit from uh, Champions Tour pro Donnie Hammond. I'll talk to Donnie about his memories and playing experiences with the King Arnold Palmer. Donnie lives down there in Orlando, not that far from Bay Hill. He was uh, exempted into, uh, into Bay Hill his rookie year out on tour. We'll talk about how he got that exemption. We'll also talk about the practice round that he got to play with Mr. Palmer at the 1986 Masters. We all know and love that golf tournament, right, and memories from that. He got to play a practice round with Mr. Palmer that year. So we'll talk about that and a whole lot more when he joins me later on in this half hour. So a lot of great stories we're going to get to uh, listen to this morning. I am so glad that you're here to take the journey with me over the next hour or so. And like I mentioned a moment ago, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort, which is an absolutely spectacular place. Their Pete Dye and Donald Ross designed courses were ranked number one and number two in the state of Indiana by Golf Week. It was the site of last year's Senior PGA Tour Championship. They recently hosted the LPGA Legends Championship. Go to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself how great it is and to book your stay. Folks, every week here on Next on the T, we like to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women serving in every branch of our military who are tuning in around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. We want to thank all of you for your daily sacrifices that you make you know, for, for us and everybody around the world to keep our freedoms and our liberties safe. We also want to thank our veterans for all that you do and your families have done for us over the years. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life continues to be possible. 
Folks, if you happen to see a member of our military when you're out and about, wherever it is, whether it's on the golf course, in the airport, at a grocery store, a restaurant, wherever you might be, please stop for a moment and tell them thank you. They are our true heroes. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It is such an honor for us to have Next on the T be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. And veterans, I want to continue to remind you, check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. What a great site with news and articles and a wealth of information designed specifically for our veterans out there that I'm, I'm sure you're going to find both interesting and beneficial to you. Again, globalvoiceforveterans.org. All right, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is uh, PGA Tour Rules official Stephen Cox. Let me give you a little more background on Stephen. He won the Lincolnshire Open as an amateur, and he captained the British team to a bronze medal in the 1996 World Student Championship. He became a, tours, a, rule, a PGA Tour rules official back in 1998, and like I said, I had the, uh, the privilege of uh, speaking to Stephen a few weeks ago along with Mark Dusbavik at the Tour Championship. What a great pleasure it was to get to spend a few minutes chatting with Steve and Mark at that great event, and uh, both really fantastic gentlemen. And I'm excited that Stephen is here with me and next on the tee. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for joining me this morning. Good morning, Chris. It's an absolute pleasure to be on your show. Stephen, let's uh, let's start out by going all the way back to the beginning. Curious to get to, you know your stories. When did you first develop a love for the game of golf? Who put a golf club in your hands? Well, it was my father. I think I started as a as a child, just like many kids, uh, you know, of today. They 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 grow up watching their father play, and you, you start caddying, and and uh, and I, I used to see his clubs in the in the in the study area and you know as when he finished and I, i'd grab one and go down the shaft and chip chip the ball around the, the garden and 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 sort of grew to have fun with it that way and then i, I slowly graduated to hitting some pots on the carpet and stuff like that and uh and then eventually got my own set of clubs and it, it really went from there and then as i grew more, more interested in in the game um and obviously sh- you know, my father very quickly picked up on this, and we started going to golf tournaments, and that's when the real bug hit. When you saw the, the stars of the game playing, and you realised what could be done uh, with the golf ball, and, and then I was hooked, and then it was game over after that. <laughs> and you talk about getting to see some stars of the game. Who were some of the stars that you idolised growing up and uh, and got to watch? Well, coming from Europe. Um, you know, obviously attending the European events. I mean, the European the European Tour uh, was very active at that time. Uh, back in the early 80s and into the early 90s, was very active in the UK. We used to play a number of events in the UK, and uh, you know the likes of Severiano Ballesteros, uh, God rest his soul, and and you know obviously players who are still active today, the likes of Ian Woosnam and Sandy Lyle. Um, Jose Maria Alathabal, they were the guys that they were the players that I grew up uh, watching. And, uh, you know, you didn't have to be around the likes of Mark James, Sam Torrance, and particularly Seve to uh, very long to, you know, to, to really start to, to get the bug. I mean, they were so charismatic as players. They interacted so wonderfully with the, certainly as us as, as kids and as youth and, uh, you know, they were, they, they were the stars of my, of my youth growing up. So, Stephen, you, you had a wonderful level of success 
as an amateur, you know, winning, like I say, at the Lincolnshire Open. I read where you opened the 1989 event with a 70 at, uh, at Woodhall, Spa, uh, Woodhall Spa Golf Club. So uh, curious, you know, as, as, a, as an amateur, talk about some of the events that you got to be a part of and what it was like actually to, to be a part of the Lincolnshire Open. Well, I mean, obviously the U.K. is considerably smaller than the U.S. Let's start with that. Um, and I, as an amateur growing up, I played pretty much the the amateur the amateur the full time amateur circuit. Now I didn't necessarily travel over and play in the the US amateur, but I but I I played in you know pretty much everything that that was on offer as an amateur in UK and Europe. And um, you know, and I had had my fair fair degree of successes, and, and I, I chose uh, rightly or wrongly to combine my playing career with uh, my educational uh, career. So I I uh, you know, went along to university and got a degree just as a backup plan if the playing side didn't work out. And uh, so I was a little bit on the back back foot in terms of the, some of the guys who were playing full-time and didn't necessarily focus on their educational careers. Um, and, you know, I did well. I, I, I'm proud to have represented uh, Great Britain in, in two world student games, and we got a bronze in, in Switzerland, which we were delighted about. And then uh, as you talk about the Lincolnshire Open, which is actually a pro event, uh, I actually won that as an amateur uh, which I'm, you know, obviously very proud and and never ever turned professional. I got to that crossroads in life, Chris, and, and I've always been a realist growing up. Um, I was fortunate enough to grow with some in the era of some very very good players, and whereas I was somewhat struggling, although I was a plus three handicapper, you know, and you know very comfortable with my own game. There's a difference between, you know, coming out of the amateur ranks and actually making money at tour level. So I was, it quickly dawned on me that. I, I uh, very quickly dawned on me that I had to make a, a choice, and uh, obviously through my educational stuff, uh, I got the opportunity to go into the administration of the game, and uh, I was I was lucky enough to start with one of the PGA sectionals, as you'd know it out here in the US, and and as soon as I got into the workplace in the early 20s, then as you know, you go to the workplace then you know, your social life and your, your the time that you can dedicate to the game. Uh, you know, obviously it, it had an effect on the quality and at that point in time, my, my sort of career path was set. So uh, that's, that's sort of where I ended up. And, I, you know, over the time I worked, I worked with the sectionals and worked my way up and, and eventually found myself at the, at the highest level on the PGA Tour. So, Stephen, is, you know, take us through, right, you know, becoming a PGA Tour rules official isn't, isn't like you just decide, well, one day I'm going to be a rules official, right? As I was talking, you know, with, uh, with Mark Duspavik a few weeks back, right, I mean, it is, is, you know, people, if you read up on that sort of thing, it's, it's a, a job to get into. I mean, you're essentially either waiting for someone to retire or die. It's not like, you know, there are a lot of these positions available. Talk about, you know, A, you know, making your, getting yourself uh, you know, ready to be a, a, a PGA Tour rules official because there's a lot of steps you have to go through in testing, you know, to just, you know, qualify essentially. But then you're waiting, you know, for an opportunity. How did that all come together for you? Well, you, you mentioned, you, I mean, I hate to use the term, but in dead man's shoes, that, that is testament to, uh, to the company that we work for in terms of the PGA Tour. I, I, thank, I think myself very fortunate enough to, to work with such a great organization that does so many wonderful things around the world, uh, particularly in the continental United States. Um, 
but you're right. You know, this is not a, it's not a race. It's not a short-term process. You don't become a world-class rules official overnight. You would you don't necessarily become world-class at anything overnight without a good amount of training, water under the bridge. You know, time is is you know you've, you've just got to get out there and do it. And I started back in '97 and and slowly started. You know, obviously having a playing a decent playing credibility and, and had a good understanding of the game that really set me off. But at that point, as a as a player, I didn't really have a terrific you know knowledge of the rules, so I had to had to gain an appreciation for that. Um, not necessarily just you know what rule is is the right answer, but why are certain rules written the way they are? So you can actually, when a player asks you, not just say, well, why is it that way? rather than just turning around to the player and saying, well, it is the way it is, or you actually can provide some sort of background information as to why a certain rule has that outcome to allow them to understand that the decision that they're making makes makes common sense. So, Stephen, as I, as I mentioned, it's, it, you know, being a rules official is, is a lot more than just handing out rulings on the days of the tournament. You guys get involved in a lot of background stuff, a lot of the details that go into, you know, making a tournament happen. Talk about your responsibilities and what they are, you know, even, you know, not just during the week of the tournament, but some of this stuff goes years prior to a tournament happening, right? Yeah, you're right. And I think that's one of the differences that we find ourselves as, as, as professional rules officials or referees with other major sports um, organizations. You know, a lot of those referees literally just turn up for game time, and then once game time's over, they, they leave, you know, and that's their responsibility. Whereas ours is different. You're, you're absolutely right. We, as rules officials, and, our, our, you know, the Players' Championship is one of my events, and, you know, we are constantly working with the tournament and also the venue months, months, years in advance on sort of stuff. You know, if you want to make changes to a golf course, um, whether, you know, in, in terms of, you know, design feature architectural changes and that sort of stuff doesn't happen overnight so you know we're constantly tweaking constantly upgrading you know and we are obviously heavily involved in that process and, and in terms of any any you've, you've been to a pga tour event you, you understand the size of it and um you know the huge amounts of structures they don't just appear overnight it's not by chance that they are positioned in a certain way um in a certain location you know everything that's placed on a golf course needs to be approved from a rules and competitions perspective because ultimately, you know, how wayward golf balls can get. And, uh, you, know, also, you know, we've got to basically rule on those situations. So, you know, we're making, um, you came to the Tour Championship, for example, in Atlanta. You know, Mark, who's the advanced official there, would make multiple site visits to, to discuss with the host organization and the tournament um, many things and make many site visits leading in. So when he does arrive a week in advance, everything is set. Um, so it's obvious, you know, from our standpoint, yeah, you're right. We get a lot of people saying, oh, you just sit on a golf cart under a, under a shade tree and just give rulings. Well, it's not quite as easy as that. There's a lot more planning than goes, it goes into, um, the job that we do leading into the tournament. And obviously when the, the tournament week comes around, then we're into conducting of the, of the tournament. It isn't just a case of just giving rulings. A lot of our time is spent setting up the golf course choosing of hole locations, choosing of tee positions, and, uh, and also um, ensuring that our players, you know, play in a timely manner, which is, you know, easier said than done. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's a big part of what we do, and, uh, you know, we're happy to do it. 
Um, so we have some players who want to play faster than others and some that need a little bit more encouragement than others. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot more to our job than just going out there and, and, and giving, a, giving a ruling. And, you know, to that end, Stephen, I mean, you, you guys get down into the minutia of, like, you know, where hospitality tents are placed down to, you know, to where benches are placed. I saw an article that, you know, about you or with you last, you know, from last year, you talk about, you know, being responsible for the players championship and at the TPC, I mean, they were getting your help on where to place a bench next to the T to make sure that that, that that was good. You know, you know, talk, you know, not only talk about that detail, but as you mentioned, uh, you know, to me prior to you know the show going live with respect to the TPC, you've got those details, and now with in the aftermath of Hurricane Matthew, there's there's some you know things going on now at the TPC Sawgrass that you have to get involved with as well, right? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's this when you're dealing with forty, fifty thousand people around a golf course, it's absolutely crucial that you position things in the right. In, you know, in the right place, um, and obviously, our, you know, we have obligations to our partners, our broadcast partners. So, from a television standpoint, you you want you want things to try and look the right way to those people watching the broadcast, either online or at home. Um, so, you know, so it does take a little bit of figuring out at times. Um, but you know, that's why you make your site visits, and, and that's why you work with um, you know the host organisation in advance to get it right. But you're right. I mean, I, I live in Ponte Vedra and uh, home of TPC Sawgrass and the Players' Championship. And we, you know, we did get hit pretty hard, just like a lot of people down the East Coast just recently with Hurricane Matthew. And didn't come at exactly ideal timing for us, given uh, the work that is going on there at Sawgrass in preparation for the next year's event. It's, uh, we're under very, very strict time pressures to, to get the golf course um, right. We're making a lot of changes, uh, structural changes and design feature changes, which the viewers, those that come, and also the ones that watch it on TV will be able to see. Um, most notably, between the sixth holes and the seventh hole in the front nine, there's now, a, there used to be a huge mound between those two holes, and it's now been excavated, and it's now a huge lake, which will be incredibly impressive from the eye, and pro- provide for a far wow. more challenging tee shot from 7T. Um, and then on the, on the back nine, the other huge change is that the 12th hole, which was a, short par four blind second shot often not a great hole from a viewing standpoint very difficult um for the spectators to navigate from 11 to 12 and then 12 into 13 it 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 was um you know if you you weren't on the front row then you really weren't going to get a great view well that hole has been modified uh so it's now allowed the committee to to set it up as drivable so it'll really kick start um um, some some drama, or we're certainly hoping. You know, obviously, eleven will probably play that. That par five will probably play that as as drivable, and uh, oh, sorry, as uh, reachable. The par five, eleventh hole, and then that'll move you into the twelfth hole, which will be which will be drivable. So you you, you know, a player may be able to make a, a two there, and then you know, hopefully, really kickstart his his push for the tournament. So uh, we're we're really excited about how that's turned out. Um, the grow the growing up until Hurricane Matthew has been has been excellent, and we 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 were on time for a um, for a soft opening mid mid November. Um, but you know Hurricane Matthew now set us back a little bit, but we're still we're still very excited about um, our, you know what's going on out there, the amount of work. Um, not only has the golf course been modified a little bit. Um, 
but we've also done a lot of work to enhance the experience for our fans, which has been a major, major uh, priority for us over the last four or five years. You know, we to stadium, it was built as a stadium golf course, and we really wanted to to stand up. And, and when people came, paid good money to to watch golf, we wanted people to be able to, you know, get a, a really front row view. And so we've worked hard on that, and we've made some, you know, made some great great strides in, in on that side as well. So we're really, in, in, in short, we're really we're really excited. But you know, little minor blip got some trees down we've got a lot of cleanup work to be done um but all in all we're in good shape and Stephen, when uh when we were talking at the tour championship i asked you what the toughest ruling you ever had to hand out was and you, you smiled at me and told me anything having to do with seve biasteros so curious to get you know your interactions with seve what those were like and you know, Seve obviously was known for for his game and gamesmanship, particularly when he, it had uh, had to do with the Ryder Cup. So, I imagine um, he uh, he gave you a couple of challenges. What were some of the things that he uh, he would uh, push you on? Well, I think the first thing I'll say about Seve was if you grow up, um, and, I, and I think Arnold Palmer is is you know in terms of the profile for a U.S. Although Arnold is um, you know his profile is world. Is obviously, you know, world world renowned. Um, from a European standpoint, Savvy was our was always at He was the, the the really one that drove European tour golf on back in the late 70s, early 80s, and really put European golf on the map, as opposed to being dominated largely by by the US. And uh, you know, he was he was my hero. He was he was the king of Europe at that point in time. You know, arguably number one player in the world, and um, and to go from a golf fan and then to move into into the into the you know as a rules official, all of, all of a sudden I went from wow I went from a fan to now I'm actually giving this guy you know, rule rulings. It's, it's, it, was, it was quite daunting in the early part of my career. Um, and then obviously Seve being Seve, he, he you know just like his you know gamesmanship, if you want to call it that, went you know with his with his fellow competitors or his opponents. You know, he would have the same presence, and that's probably a better word, a huge presence. So, you know, he had, although he, he you know, his, his um, use of the English language wasn't as, as, as good as it maybe could have been, he did have a wonderful way of putting, certain, you know, certain situations across to try and believe you that what he wanted was the right answer. So you had, sometimes you had to, you know, stand your ground and, you know, and here you got you got a seasoned veteran in Seve trying to trying to listen to to a young to to a you know a young rookie rules official. You can imagine you know the pressure you can that you can feel. So that's why I and every ruling really, irrespective of how basic, it was almost like he was testing you. And and we have those sort of players on tour today. They don't they may not necessarily be doing it deliberately. We just have some players on tour that are far more inquisitive and ask you far more questions than other other guys just accept it and they move on. You know, Jordan, for example, is he's an absolute breath of fresh air for our tour. He's a wonderful young man and he's so eloquent for someone so young, but he's incredibly inquisitive when it comes to the rules of golf. And it's not because he's necessarily trying to gain advantage. He just wants to know what he wants to understand. So he's, he will fire questions at, at you and, and often questions that you're possibly not, not expecting. So it's very 
very easy to, to get on the back foot with some of these guys, um, particularly in situations of high pressure. But, um, yeah, so it was always a challenge, but, uh, you know, I had huge respect for him nonetheless. And just to expand on, you know, your comments about Jordan, and, and we know there are players like Phil Mickelson comes to mind, right, guys who are very opinionated, willing to share their thoughts on everything. Are there, you know, guys on tour who come and chat with you guys, whether it's to, you know, to lend their two cents about, you know, how they think things should be or ruled on or how the course should be set up or just to sit down and pick your brain about, you know, some of the, the rules of golf that they may not be 100% sure of? Yeah, I think from a golf course setup perspective, guys come in who and they'll talk to you and you can have a very logical debate about why you've set it up a certain way. Um, then you're obviously, you'll get a, a situation where a, a certain player may not be particularly happy about the way you've set it up and just wants to make a, a remark and has no interest in, you know, listening to your response. Um, you know, but in terms of the rookies, who are coming out and are can often be, you know, a little bit quick to judge, particularly when you're dealing with seasoned veterans on our rule staff who understand how to set golf courses up. Um, just to remind them that, firstly, hindsight's a wonderful thing. You know, we're often dealing with the <laughs> forecast for weather, so uh, that's exactly what it is. And sometimes it doesn't materialise as we expect. And sometimes, um, you know, if we'd have had the chance to do it differently, we, you know, we would have done it differently. But we always remind them of of a story that when I first came out here that someone told me and they, they reminded me that, that Tiger, um, as good as player as he was, and, you know, he obviously played, he played great the most of the time. He would never complain about golf course setup because he allowed his game to do the talking. And, and, you know, that was the best player in the world, arguably, one, you know, the best player ever. He just allowed his game to do the talking. He didn't worry about, you know, what we were doing with certain hole locations or green speeds. The golf course was there. It was set up, whether it be easy or difficult. He just, he just knew that, you know, he, 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 would, he, he would take it apart if he was playing well. And he wouldn't look for excuses if he did, if, you know, if he didn't play well enough. He, he'd never come to us and start moaning about the way we're setting up or the rust too deep. Or he knew that he would, he would just allow his game to do the talking. And, I, and I, you know, we, occasionally we'll remind a rookie of that. You know, how few times, you know, these best players in the world actually come to it, and uh, you know, they they keep fairly silent on that sort of stuff. I'm talking with uh, PGA Tour rules official Stephen Cox here on Next on the Tee. And, Stephen, just a couple more before we let you go. Were you, uh, were you a part of the uh, crew working at the Ryder Cup uh, a couple of weeks ago? I was part of the crew that was watching it at home, Chris. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, you know, it's obviously it's a, a wonderful event. I've, I've, I've been both as a spectator and, obviously, I've worked. When I was working in Europe, I worked. Um, a number of Ryder Cups, both home in Europe and um, the last Ryder Cup I worked was at Valhalla in 2008. So I've seen it from both sides, and I'm now um, I'm now a passive observer. The PJ Tour doesn't get involved in from an, from a rules and competition standpoint. We leave that to the PJ of America. So um, I'm just uh, I just sit at home and just observe it, just like everybody else. Um, but for the for the wonderful event that it is. 
And Stephen, you know, life life as a rules official isn't all sunshine and rainbows. I imagine, you know, you're traveling all the time. You know, I, I, when I when I think about what you guys have to do, it seems like at least you know from a travel perspective, similar to a baseball umpire, and then that in that you're you know from one tournament you're on the road to the next one, into the next one, into the next one. Um, but you know, perhaps it's a, it's a little worse than the baseball umpires because you guys have a couple of things. One, you've got all these details behind the scenes, as we talked about a moment ago. Plus now, the, you know, with the tour and it's adapted, you know, wraparound season. Now it's, you know, it's all year round, essentially. But so what's day-to-day like like for you guys? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's not that dark a picture. I mean, look, I was, I'll, I, I'll t- take a picture sometimes when I'm on the road between weeks and send a picture of myself in a laundrette somewhere send a picture saying it's all glamour on the PGA tour to my wife. But, you know, look, I can think of far worse things to do for a living. We are blessed in terms of the people that, that we meet on the, on the, on the road, people like yourself, the relationships that we form with not only our players and our caddies, um, but also the wonderful host organizations and tournament sponsors that are put on these wonderful events each week. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm truly, I'm truly blessed to, to work for such a, a major, um, a wonderful sporting organization such as the PGA Tour. Um, I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, my day-to-day stuff, I mean, when I'm, when I'm off, I, it allows me to re-engage with the family. I can, um, you know, I, I, you, you, we, we sometimes, depending on your own personal circumstances, allows you to travel to, for one, two, maybe three or four weeks at a time. So you, you're obviously going to be removed from your family. Um, and then obviously when you're at home, it allows you to re-engage. Um, but when you're on, you know, you're on and you, you, you've seen the, the hours that you work were often first there and last to leave. And that's just the nature of the beast, you know, it's the leisure industry and we're working whilst others are enjoying. But uh, like I said, don't feel too sorry for us. We're blessed to work in such a wonderful game. <laughs> so what's your schedule look like in the coming, uh, in the upcoming weeks? Uh, well, I'm off next week. And then I head to Las Vegas for the Shriners Hospitals for Children Open, which is another wonderful event. I go there, um, and I'll spend a week on site getting things ready. And uh, and then we'll move into tournament week. And then from there, I'll have uh, a few days off, spend a bit of time at Sawgrass assessing the, the, the golf course there, and then head up, head up to Sea Island for the uh, the RSM Classic. And then, and, you know, next time you blink, it's Thanksgiving. So, Right. So, Stephen, um, how can our listeners follow you, stay up to date with the things you're doing over social media? Well, I'm on Twitter. I think it's um, – uh, I've got a Twitter handle. I think it's StephenCox27. So follow us online there. There's, a, there's also um, uh, Pro Golf Reps, which is our group. Uh, so there's all loads of – for those of you who are interested in but a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look in terms of what's going on, uh, for those of you interested in learning a little bit more about the rules of golf, uh, or explanation as to why certain things are happening. Um, go on to the Pro Golf Reps website. There's a lot of interesting articles there written by our officials from not only the PGA Tour, but also the champions or PGA Tour champions and also the web.com tour. So uh, a lot of inter- interesting information there, and you'll get to know some of the officials that are working on the, the PGA Tour uh, each week, a little bio on there uh, of all of us. There you go. Stephen, 
Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy morning to be a part of the show. I've really enjoyed getting to spend some time with you back at the at the Tour Championship and again here this morning. I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. You're you're really fantastic. Chris, thanks for all your hard work. Uh, that's the one thing that I've really it really uh, um, that I that I took took aside when I came over here to the United States about eight years ago, working with a tour that, and it's something that I'm determined to improve in the UK particularly is that. Is, is the is the appreciation and and the connection that these major sporting events have with our armed forces? I, I'm fortunate enough to see it every week, and that's something I'm determined to improve um, in the UK. Um, I can't I can't thank the stuff that you do and, and a lot of our tournaments do for our uh, um, you know our service personnel who we should be blessed to have there on the front line. So thanks for all you do. I appreciate that very much. Stephen, take care. Please say hello to Mark for me when you see him. In between now and the the next opportunity I get to spend with you, all the best to you and your family, my friend. Thanks, Chris. Take care, Stephen. Bye. That is uh, PGA Tour rules official Stephen Cox, and uh, boy, I mean, just barely, you know, picked the surface of uh, of the, some of the things I want to talk to Stephen about. So hopefully, we get the opportunity to catch up with him uh, again between, uh, you know, I, sh- I should say, in the not too distant future. So, at Stephen Cox 27, follow him on Twitter. Great stuff. All right, before I get to my next guest, Donnie Hammond, uh, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at the Bobby Jones Company, folks. It's cold, damp, windy days are on on the horizon, right? And uh, they are very much game changers. You know what it's like trying to play golf out out in conditions like that. But you can beat the odds with Bobby Jones layers. Full quarter zip pullovers, super soft sweaters, great stuff they have in their new fall line. Check out all the great styles by going to bobbyjones.com. And like I say, when you're on that site... Click on the equipment link that you're going to you know, see at the top. Uh, it's a tab right there at the top of the page. You're going to get to see a, a great line of drivers, fairway woods, hybrids, and putters designed by one of the game's most influential equipment designers, Jesse Ortiz. And like his father, Lou, and Bobby Jones himself now, Jesse has a passion for golf and club design. You remember his great tri, uh, tri-metal woods back in the days at Olimar? What fantastic clubs those were. Well, now he's putting his creativity and in, uh, innovative designs to work creating great golf, great golf equipment for the Bobby Jones Company. Check it out online by going you know, directly to their site if you want at bobbyjonesclubs.com or when you're on, uh, on the site checking out all the great apparel from Bobby Jones, bobbyjones.com. There's an equipment tab link right there as well. So please check it out. Really, really great stuff. All right, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Donnie Hammond. Let me remind you about Donnie's background. He was born in Frederick, Maryland, which is in the northern part of the state near the Virginia and West Virginia lines. He uh, attended Jacksonville University and was a four-year letterman on their golf team. And as a sophomore, he placed seventh in the 1977 Sun Belt Championship. And as a senior, he won it. He is a charter member of the Jacksonville University Sports Hall of Fame. Donnie earned his tour card by being a medalist at the 1982 PGA Tour Qualifying Tournament Championship right at TPC Sawgrass. Heard heard us talking about uh, TPC with uh, Stephen. He won that event by a record 14 strokes, folks. Played on the PGA Tour from 1983 to 1998. He won twice at the 1986 Bob Hope Chrysler Classic and the 1989 Texas uh, Texas Open, where he came within one stroke of the all-time scoring record. Shot rounds of 65-64, 65-64 at Oak Hills Country Club. He also uh, won once out on the Web.com Tour at the 2000 Lakeland uh, Classic, 
Over the course of Donnie's career, he's had 46 top 10 finishes, and he's made the cut an amazing 70% of the time. And I'm honored that he is back with me again this morning on Next on the Tee. Hey, Donnie, how are you, my friend? Hey, Chris, doing great. So, Donnie, I wanted to spend some time with you this morning talking about your relationship and memories of of Arnold Palmer. When was the first time that uh, you had the opportunity to meet Mr. Palmer? That would have been the first year on tour, 1983. Uh, After winning the tour school, I started getting courted by some of the management companies, and IMG was one of the companies that suggested we get together and talk about it. They said, you know, we may even get be able to get you an exemption into the Bay Hill classic in Orlando, which is where I was living. So I thought, well, that would be fantastic. So we had some meetings there and I got to meet Arnold that, uh, that week of Bay Hill because I got an exemption. So, uh, it was actually my first year on tour and, you know, that was a great little boost to be able to play in an invitational like that to, you know, to help a young guy get out and get his feet wet on the tour. So, uh, it was it was just great to start a relationship with Arnold, um, you know, that first year. And it's interesting, you know, as I was kind of going, going back doing some research, Donnie, at that 83 Bay Hill Invitational, you got to be paired with Jack Nicklaus, right? That was a crazy story, Chris. I, I got paired with Jack the final round. We were in pretty good shape. I think we were around top 10 and, you know, paired with Jack and David Graham and, just what you don't want to have happen the first time you're paired with Jack is have a small incident happen. What happened is on 10, Jack went inside for a couple minutes and David and I were on the tee and he suggested we hit. So I hit, David hits, Jack comes out on the tee and we, you know, we let him know we just hit. He said, okay. But then walking down the fairway, he puts his hand on my shoulder and says, Donnie, I know you guys hit to speed up play, but there's a chance that that may be a penalty hitting out a turn knowingly. And I said, Ooh, I hope not because I know those, most of the penalties are two shots. What ends up being a two shot penalty. So I ended up doubling that hole. They end up mentioning it on TV and it, you know, it it wasn't, it wasn't great because it didn't help the score. I moved down the leaderboard a little bit and, you know, it was just one of those little things that happened, but it was, it was a thrill to play with Jack the first year there. Yeah, especially no at Arnold's tournament. Right. And and Donnie, you know, speaking of Jack and, and, and Arnold, and we've talked about your experience being in the second to last group in the final round of the 86 Masters, perhaps the, you know, the greatest back nine in the history of the sport, thanks to Mr. Nicholas's charge to win that event. But I, I saw the video of the interview that you did not long ago with a friend of the show, Matt Adams. So I have a world of respect for Matt. And you talked about, you know, playing nine holes in the practice round at the 86 Masters with Mr. Palmer that year. Do you mind sharing that story? Yeah, that was Tuesday. Uh, that was, I mean, the Masters is one of the weeks where you really look forward to playing practice rounds. Usually it's kind of work out on the tour. It's, you know, there's a lot of golfers, but the Masters, it's a limited field, and it's, you know, you're out there, you're just soaking it up the whole week. So I had put in a full day. It was about, probably had to be 5.30 in the evening. I was ready to wrap up in about two minutes, hitting a few more putts and this pro came off the ninth green walking over to the 10th tee. And he looks over and he says, Hey rookie, you feel like playing nine? I didn't even have to think about it. Really. I was tired. I was hungry. And I <laughs> love to Arnold. Let's go caddy. Get the bag. We're going to, we're going to 10. So off we go. And, and he had a pretty good gallery too, for 
you know, being that late in the evening, we had, you know, quite a, quite a nice gallery, just the two of us, but he was fantastic showing me, you know, the lines off the tees with certain wind conditions, showed me where the flags were going to be, you know, where you would want to putt from on holes like 10, 12, you know, he showed me, you know, let me know how to read the wind a little bit there on 12, where to look for it. You know, when you're coming down 11, start thinking about 12 right away. So that kind of helped a lot. Um, you know, just we worked on the greens a lot. And I got done and I thought, wow, that was just, that was something that, a you know, a veteran that, you know, I don't know if Arnold was trying to win that week or not, but he was certainly trying to get out there and prepare himself to make the cut and have a good tournament to, to really go out of his way to, you know, to help me learn the golf course just meant a lot to me. And it, and it did help me. Uh, some of the things he told me, you know, came in handy and I was, you know, I got right there within, within one round to go. So it, it obviously helped a lot and, and it meant a lot to me too. So, you know, to that, to that end, Donnie, was, was there, you know, one piece of information or, or, you know, that you kind of look back on and, you know, really, you know, really actually helped you, you know, get you into position to, you know, be in that second to last group. Was there something you out on the, you know, out on the course that you were consciously thinking, you know what, Mr. Palmer told me to do this. It could have been as much just the confidence to, you know, to be around someone of Arnold's stature, maybe. I think some of the technical um, things that he told me definitely helped me a shot or two. So I would say, you know, that gave me confidence to play that nine holes that, that I, I could go out there and know what I was going to be able to do and, and what I needed to do on that nine holes. So that's half the golf course. So mm-hmm. um, it, it had to help me at least a couple shots there over the, over the first three days. Did did he share any of his memories? You know, I, 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 who knows? I mean, obviously, it's a it's a huge thrill just for me to think about Donnie that you're you're back there walking the back nine at Augusta National with Arnold Palmer. Did he share memories of when he you know won his his Masters tournament as you're sort of walking along the holes? I don't think we talked as much about when he was winning tournaments. He had a couple really funny stories though. Um, I mean, we were kind of just talking about the family and traveling the tour and playing the tour, but he didn't really talk too much about some of his wins there because it probably would have sounded like bragging a little bit, you know, what he had done there. He had such a, an immense record at Augusta, but he did tell me a story walking down 10 that he drove one out to the right there. You know, that, that whole bends to the left. He drove it through right. the fairway. There's a couple portalettes down there. One of the marshals said, Arnold, you may want to wait because someone walked in the portalette and you better wait till he comes out and closes the door. And so they were, you know, like five yards from it. So he's waiting. Nobody's coming out. Arnold finally walks up to the portalette, says, are you going to come out? And he hears, no, because there's a pretty good crowd around the portalette. Arnie says, please come out. He goes, okay. He opens the door, and Arnold's standing right there. <laughs> and he was just like, okay, let me get out of the way here. <laughs> but the people were laughing, and it's just, you know, it's kind of times like that where, you know, there might have been a pressure situation, but everyone just starts laughing, and it just relieves all the pressure. And, and it was a, it sounded like it was a lot of fun that day. I'm sure the guy that was in there never forgot that. <laughs> I imagine he did not. 
So, you know, the, I guess sort of, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's the opposite of, of that, you know, Donnie, but, you know, as a big fan of Mr. Nicholas, and I've watched the video from the 86 Masters, you know, countless times, and, and there's a clip of Mr. Palmer saying that he believed Jack at 46 could still win and that there was no reason that Arnold at 56 couldn't still win. All he had to do, you know, was get it together one time. So when, when you were playing with him, did, did you get a sense, you know, at that time that he still believed that he could win that golf tournament? I think Jack probably believed he could win majors when he was 50, 52, 54. He was so strong mentally. Uh, he, you know, his physically, he, he stayed really strong and hit the ball pretty far for, you know, a guy that was starting to play the champions tour and nobody played with the, you know, the mental toughness and single mindedness and focus that Jack played with until tiger came along. So, I mean, I'm sure, there were majors after that, that, that Jack thought he had a pretty good chance to win. If he got, um, you know, four shots back with two days to go, I'm sure when he went to bed that night, he wasn't having a couple glasses of wine celebrating that he made the cut. He was trying to figure out how he could get back in this tournament, maybe win at, you know, maybe be the oldest player to ever win a major. That, that was probably one of his goals. So uh, I'm sure that happened for years after, uh, after 86. And Donnie, like you mentioned, you live down there in Orlando, which is, you know, where Bay Hill is. And did did you get an opportunity to spend time outside of the Bay Hill tournament week, either playing golf or sitting around talking with Mr. Palmer over the years? Uh, I would usually, I would, I had friends there that were members at Bay Hill and I would go out and play the shootout there that they would have every day around noon. And a lot of times Arnie would play in that and I would say hi and, um, you know, he would just, you know, give you a nice smile and it would kind of make your day when you would, uh, you know, when you would run into him there at the course. Uh, so I, I would get to see him, but we didn't get to talk a whole lot. Everybody kind of wants his time and he just wants to get out there and kind of gamble a little bit with his buddies and try to get a few skins. So he was trying like everybody else to, to win a few bucks there during the game. So, but it was always, you know, he was always on your mind when you would be at Bay Hill, uh, whether you were, playing in the tournament or just, um, you know, playing it on a Tuesday on an off week, you always, his presence, you could always feel it there. And I'm sure, you know, it will for, for, you know, many years to come, whenever people are out there, they'll, they'll be thinking about Arnold. Right. So, you, you know, you, you talked about, you know, the opportunity to play with Mr. Nicholas at the, at the Bay Hill classic and, and Mr. Palmer there at the, in the practice round. Did any other times you had an opportunity to play with either one of those two gentlemen? Yeah, I played, played with Jack at the U S open up in Oakmont. Uh, we played the third round together. That was a whole nother crazy story, but um, Arnold, Played with Arnold and Ray Floyd. We played. A, we had a senior junior tournament out in Utah at Jeremy Ranch. Great tournament. I was playing on the regular tour. My partner was Al Besselink. Uh, he, big, big, burly, uh, white-haired guy that hit the ball really nice. Was a was a great guy. Great personality. Played the tour for years. Was good friends with Doug Sanders and won some tournaments on the tour. We get paired with Arnold and Raymond for the last round and Bessie is a mess that night at dinner. He's worried about how he's going to play, what he's going to shoot, how, how he's going to handle the day. I said, Bessie, you're 62 years old. You've won tournaments on the PGA tour. You keep a grip on Arnold 
and I'll take care of Raymond. Okay, we're going to go over this again in the morning at breakfast. But do not worry. You're playing well. You're going to be able to handle this. And Bessie starts nodding like he didn't go for it. He knew he was going to be terrified out there. But on the last hole of the tournament, we're tied with him. We're in about second place. Bessie has a 30-foot straight downhill putt on these really tricky and fast greens. He hits this thing. It's going to roll 10 feet by. But it hits the back of the hole, jumps up, goes right in. And it was one of the loudest roars on 18 I think I've ever heard. They had a great gallery up there. And we ended up uh, nipping them by a stroke. So we wow. were uh, we had a great time that night. That was one of the all-time great celebrations up there in uh, Park City that night. And Donnie, switching gears a little bit, want to get your thoughts on the on the Ryder Cup? Um, did you tune in? What what were your thoughts of what you saw? You know, from uh, from you know our effort this year, the the tournament this year, and the play up at Hazeltine. Well, I, I mean, every you know, Patrick Reed played unbelievable. That that's going to go so far for him over the years when he gets in majors. I mean, it's like a major is not going to be as much pressure as you know the situation that those guys were in. You know, going into the last singles day. So that you know, that just was amazing. Their match, and the other thing that really impressed me was the way that Phil played you know, with some of the stuff going on early in the week with Hal Sutton and, you know, the carryover with Tom Watson. Um, there was a lot of pressure on him that week to play well, and he just – he played amazing, especially the last couple of days there. Uh, that was that was really impressive, and that had to be some of the best golf I think Phil's ever played uh, uh-huh. in, in any kind of pressure situation. It was fun to watch. It's nice uh, – I think it's I think it's really going to help the tournament that the US was able to to get a win there and you know another thing that was super impressive were was a picture I saw the Ryder Cup team that Sunday night all together big smiles Darren Clark you know beautiful smile on his face they were you know they they went out as as gracious a loser as you could go out and that just showed a lot of a lot of class on their side, and that just showed, you know, if you're going to lose a tournament, that's that's the way to do it, the way they did. It was uh, – that was really, really – And when, you know, uh, there's a lot of comments, right, following, you know, during the tournament and obviously following the tournament about the crowds. And, unfortunately, we had, you know, a couple of folks do some knuckleheaded things that needed to get – you know, remove from from the tournament, but you know, just uh, curious to get your thought on on the crowds that we're seeing now at Ryder Cups. You know, I mean, whether it's you know the cheering, the you know the loud, you know, uh, you know the roars that we hear when something good or bad happens. You know, your, your thoughts on the crowds, and have you ever experienced anything like that out on tour? It started to get like that, you know, for the last five or six, seven years on tour where guys have to yell after every shot. I think it's, it's just blended from general society, I think, to where everything is about the individual and they, they want to get on TV. They want to be part of the show where it's maybe not enough just to watch the tournament. You have to be part of the noise level or you have to make, have an incident happen that you're involved with. I, I don't know. I don't like it. I, I, I wish, you know, it seems like every PJ tour event, there could be four or five people that should be escorted out every week because they're making inappropriate yells or noises, or they're 
just doing things and it's getting to the point that, you know, hopefully the tour comes in and is able to handle that. But I guess they took care of it at the Ryder cup. I guess, you know, Rory was able to point out someone and then, you know, he's gone. So it's just kind of a little bit the way, the way things are going these days, it seems. Donnie, let's switch gears a little bit completely. And as I was sort of, you know, reading through your Twitter page, you know, uh, last week you retweeted a picture of what, you know, the moon's surface looks like in true color and high definition. I've always, you know, been a fan of the Apollo moon missions, having grown up in the early 70s. You've also retweeted several other things from NASA. So, uh, you know, curious, you know, are you a space junkie like I am, I guess? Yeah, I didn't know you were space. Yeah, I, I certainly am. Yeah, I love it. It is. So, it's amazing. I, I I always have have been really. Really, um, big as a, you know, ex- so living big, down there in Orlando, you've got you know sort of easy access to NASA. You gone over and done all the tours and you know everything that they've got available there at Cape Kennedy. Yeah, we go down for a lot of the launches. Um, you know, for for many years, uh, actually saw the the launch when the, you know the first time they walked on the moon our family was on vacation in florida really? growing up in maryland and then we went back to maryland and th- then they woke me up in the middle of the night and said get up you got to see what's on tv when he one giant leap for mankind yeah they woke me up right. for that and and i've i've you know i've been a big nasa fan and now i'm crazy about spacex and um you know bezos what they're doing with some of these uh you know, landable rockets. We were down for the first SpaceX that landed on on the Cape after it, you know, it took off the single entry and then it came down and landed. Uh, we were down for that. That was really cool to yeah, no doubt to see that with a bunch of people. We were with a big uh, group of students that were from Australia, England. They were camping about 300 yards away, this little campground over there. They said, so what what actually is happening now? What what is all the people out here for? <laughs> I said, no, it's amazing. They're gonna they're gonna blast this rocket off. They're sending a satellite up into orbit. Then the rocket that launched it is gonna come down. It's gonna fire its retro rockets and it's gonna attempt to land for the first time ever right over there across the jetty. He's like, you're kidding me. I'm like, no, it's, gonna, it's <laughs> there. It is right there. You could see the light from it. It was four minutes away. And it's falling. It's falling down toward the Cape, and it comes down. And then, just like the opposite of the launch, it starts firing the the whatever fuel it had left as it gets, you know, like uh, 400 yards above the the landing area over there. And then you hear this huge explosion, like it crashed. And I'm thinking, wow. oh no, it, it it crashed again. But it was like a sonic boom. And a guy had the webcam on his phone next to it. You could hear all the people in the control tower going crazy. And I, then I saw the picture of it standing upright. And I'm like, wow, they did it. That's the first time it's ever been done. So, so it's, it's really cool, I think. And, you know, yeah, me too. People going to Mars. I think we're a little old, really, for the Mars trip. I don't, I don't know. I think it's kind of a one-way <laughs> trip anyway. So, Right. But, you know, but, you know, the other thing, if they came to you, Donnie, and this is something that I tell my family all the time, right? If, if we decided to go back to the moon, right? And NASA came to me and said, you know what? Hey, you know, we're looking for astronauts. Dude, I would be the first guy. <laughs> Absolutely. Sign me up. Let's go. 
How about you? To the moon, but then you get to come back to Earth, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I would I mean, do I'm, that. I'm not, I'm not yeah. going to colonize the moon, but I'd sure go for a little while. I mean, we could do a golf show up there. It'd be the first golf show on the moon. There you go. <laughs> Mars, I don't know. Before. That's going to be a one way, I think. So that's going to be for yeah. youngsters that are very brave and reckless. I, I think it's going to be dangerous those first couple trips. Yes. Donnie, just a, a couple more before we let you go. And, and, and you also tweeted out recently about Hurricane Matthew relief help for, for our veterans and their families. And I thank you very much for doing that. You know, our show goes out over the Armed Forces Radio Network. So really appreciate, you know, your support, you know, towards that effort. Talk about, you know, being involved and in, uh, in what we can do to help, you know, with Hurricane Matthew and our veterans. Well, I've been helping this group up in the villages. Uh, it's Combat Veterans to Careers. David Booth is a good friend of mine. He, w- he was injured over in Iraq, and he's started a group up there where they, they train injured soldiers when they come back from their tours. And they, you know, they, they train them in different positions within the golf industry. Some of the guys end up like in the fire department, some on the greens crew. Some are assistant superintendents right now that have gone through the program, but they're 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 a great organization, and uh, I, I help them with charity events, and know a lot of the guys that have gone through their program. And they, um, you know, whenever you get a chance to play in some of their charity events, or you know, you want to support a good group for the year, that's that's a really fine group. It's Combat Vets to Careers, and they're in the villages. Uh, yeah, they're they're um, they're a great group. They love they love golf too. They want, they want to get better at golf, so I've been trying to help a lot of them up there. That's fantastic. Donnie, when might uh, we see you back out on the Champions Tour? Well, I'm going to go through. I'm going to give the tour school another try this uh, November. It's Luckily, it's right here in Orlando, both stages. So uh, first stage is at the Palm Course at Disney, and then the finals are at uh, the MAG, and that's going to be the end of November beginning of December is the final. So they only give out five cards, but it's worth a shot. And I'll, I'll go out and I'll go out and play the champions tour next year. If I happen to not make the tour school, I'll go out and try some of the qualifiers next year. It's still game still feels pretty good. I'm, I'm keeping my head down when I putt and I'm starting to make a few more putts. So if I can keep doing that, who knows? There you go. Donnie, remind our listeners how they can follow you both online and over social media as well. Well, let's see. I do a little tweeting at, at Donnie Hammond, D-O-N-N-I-E, and then Hammond. That's uh, the most fun, I think. If I happen to get in a Champions Tour event, come on out and say hi. We need a lot of spectators out there. and The guys are really cool, too. The Champions Tour events are fun for spectators. So, it's um, you know, you can get up a lot closer to, to where they're hitting balls and kind of walk right next to the guys during the rounds. So, it's, it's – um, it's really fun for the for the spectators on the Champions Tour events. That's great. But Don, I'm still Donnie, plugging along. Good. I hope we get to see you out there on tour. That would uh, that would be exciting to uh, to turn on an event and uh, and see you uh, there at the top of the leaderboard once again. Yeah, one more. I'd love to love to get one this year. I'm going to give it a shot. There you go, Donnie. Thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to be a part of the show. You're always so fantastic for me to get the opportunity to talk with. I hope you'll come back, 
you know, again, soon join me and give me, you know, share more of your stories from from your time out there and insights for what's going on around uh, both tours. It would be great to catch up with you again. Soon. Uh, anytime. I love your show. You got a great show. You're great to the guests and, you know, anytime at all, just really like, like what you do with your show. It's, it's fantastic. Thank you, Donnie. All the best to you and your family, my friend. Look forward to the opportunity to catch up with you again soon. All right. Thanks, Chris. Take care, Donnie. That is uh, PGA T- uh, Champions Tour pro Donnie Hammond, and uh, great to understand Donnie's a uh, a space junkie like me. So lot lots of things that we can talk to uh, again as we go forward, and hopefully, like I said, love to see Donnie's name at the top of a leaderboard at the, on the Champions Tour again real soon. So look forward to catching up with him. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode. But before we close up shop, I you know, continue on to remind you about you know, our friend and our partner, PGA Tour professional Jim Estes, and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Let's hear about the, the, the great things that Jim and the SMGA are doing. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, like Jim says, they are really doing amazing things for our military personnel. There are veterans coming back at the Salute Military Golf Association. Please, to find out more information, to see how you can get involved, go to smga.org. All right, everybody, my sincere thanks again to Stephen Cox and Donnie Hammond for making today's show so interesting for me to be a part of. I hope you really enjoyed it as well. Want to remind you to you know, check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazeri and our announcer Joe LaGianusha. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Radio as well as the Armed Forces Radio Network. You can also stream or download it at your convenience, just like you can do for this show as well, by going to you know great sites like iHeartRadio, Podbean, our great friends over at Podbean. Thank them so much for featuring and recommending both of our shows over there. So iHeartRadio, they're great to us here on Next on the T. Podbean, so good to us. You can also find us on other great sites like Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player.fm, SoundCloud as well. So if you've got a favorite app that you like listening to content on and you know Next on the T or Thursday Night Tailgate isn't on it, please let me know about it. We'll make sure we get our shows on there for you, make it as convenient as possible for you to stream or download our shows on thursday night tailgate you know that show we are partners with the nfl alumni association and mike ditka's organization the gridiron greats so we bring you legends you know from the nfl you know uh, on that show every single week five you know five legends join us every single week on that show to share their stories and their insights for what's going on around the game of football just like we try to do very similarly here about uh, you know legends and great players from the pga and the lpga tours right uh, please check out 
you know, both shows on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us as well. And you can find this show online at nextonthetea.net, and you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free from there as well. Uh, so, folks, thank you so much for choosing to listen to the show today. We really appreciate it. We know you got thousands of you know choices for shows to stream and to download. We so appreciate the fact that you're choosing to make Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the T with Christmas Carol. Where PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors, and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love. From the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf.